So yeah, why Mephibosheth? Why, why that guy, right? Why Mephibosheth? It's a hard one. I should have, I should have given Mariah some help there. But she kind of makes a point for us. Like, that is something that's important. Like, like, why are we talking about this guy? An obscure character uh, from an obscure verse some unfamiliar Old Testament figure. Why are we talking about this one verse focused on him? Where are we going? If you've been around the last few weeks, we've been talking about loss. We've been talking about grief and trauma, these things in our lives that just should not happen. And the way we wrestle through these things. Talking about you know, dreams that go unfulfilled. Things in our lives that don't happen the way we imagined they would relationships that dissolve, things that are lost, loved ones that we, we lose, or that we lose before they're really gone, it feels like. Um, how do we deal with these things? How do we understand these things? And what we find as we open Scripture is a long line of people like Mephibosheth who have suffered, who have lost, who've dealt with grief, who've lived through traumatic experiences over and over again. April and I were actually talking about it. Uh, last week we were on the way back to Birmingham, uh, coming back into town from vacation. And we were talking about all the different people in Scripture that come to mind when you think of trauma. If you're trying to define trauma and understand trauma, like when you think about Scripture, where do you see it? And there are so many. And Job obviously comes to mind. Job is this character who loses... It seems like everything in one fell swoop. And then there's Israel and the way they suffer historically. How they watch the thing most precious to them, the temple, be burned to the ground. Jerusalem is destroyed, left in just rubble. Their loved ones are carried off into exile in a foreign land. Just left in a shambles, right? You think about all these other characters over and over again. There's a whole collection of women, really, in the Old Testament who wrestle with infertility and barrenness and are marked by that. A very real trauma is, is present throughout Scripture in so many people's lives, and it really goes all the way back to Eve, is something Jonathan and I have talked about uh, in the work of Kurt Thompson, like acknowledging that, that Eve is manipulated and deceived by the enemy, but worse than that, she's thrown under the bus by her own husband. In an act of, of cowardice, he blames everything on her. And the church, culturally, a lot of times we've done this. We've allowed that sort of interpretation of Eve to continue. Thompson says it's, it's a real act of violence against this woman. A real trauma. And that's in Genesis 3, right? Like we're three chapters in and we're already starting to see it there. It is full of these kinds of traumatic moments. But my favorite pick was April's. April said, what about Isaac? Like, obviously, like, I think a lot of people might have difficult relationships with their fathers or even non-existent relationships with your father. But none of you, I think, had a father who tried to sacrifice you. So it's like one of those things. It's like the Bible is not interested in talking about that part of, of Isaac's life, how his relationship with his father looked after that. Um, but obviously, that probably came up in therapy, right? Um, like in small group, if somebody ever asks, you know, 
What was your family like, Isaac? Complicated, right? So it's just like a weird thing. It's this whole deal. It's like Abraham wants to host a bonfire in the backyard, and Isaac always gets uncomfortable. Every time. Every time. Like, what am I supposed to do with this, Dad? I don't know what to feel about this anymore, right? That's, that's April's pick, right? And then there's Mephibosheth. Why him? Why Mephibosheth? With all of these people to pick from, much bigger in the story. Why are we talking about him? And why, if you're reading the book of 2 Samuel, does the author choose to tell you about this guy? We're not the first ones to tell you about Mephibosheth, right? In 2 Samuel, this author made a very particular choice. He wanted to tell this story about this unfamiliar person who's really not influential. He's not really consequential in the story of Israel and yet we are given this little glimpse, a single verse, telling us about him, his life as a five-year-old. And then we kind of move on from it. If you're reading the book of 2 Samuel, you move on for it, from it. And, and, and about six chapters later, it will come back to this later moment in his life. But why this? I think uh, we're being told this, this little blip of his childhood, this little story of the trauma he suffered from the age of five, so that when we get to the rest of his story, we don't just see him as some paralytic, some cripple. No, we know he has lived with this his entire life, right? We understand and appreciate where he has come from, what he has been through, and the things he suffered as a child, the trauma he endured, that only intensifies the beauty of what is to come. They're telling you this story first so that you can better appreciate and see the intense beauty of his restoration. There's, there's beauty in the painful little detail of Mephibosheth's childhood. And that's important. That's why we want to come to Scripture over and over again. Because if we keep coming back to these stories that are really painful very often, we'll begin to recognize that just as there is beauty in the painful little details of these people's lives, there's beauty in the painful little details of my life and your life and those around us. This is important when we talk about grief and trauma, to understand this. And so you get to 2 Samuel 9. I want us to read that. You can follow along in your Bibles. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like to. This is the rest of, of Mephibosheth's story. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, Jonathan was one of his best friends. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you, Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a, a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Well, where is he? the king asked. And Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness 
for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, telling us that because we understand the sacrifice that Ziba was making now to become Mephibosheth's servant. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was lame in both feet. So she kind of read further into the details of Mephibosheth's life. A lot of years have passed since he was a five-year-old little boy on the run. But his circumstance is still the same, right? He's still paralyzed, still crippled, not able to walk, not able to, to take care of himself, right? That trauma he experienced early in his life, it still defines him. And that's what we're talking about today, trauma, and, and trying to, to talk about it in a way that's scriptural, in a way that is, um, yeah, from the approach of faith and not just psychology even. How do we define trauma in the life of a believer, and how does a believer continue to believe in the face of trauma as it unfolds in and around our lives very often. What does that look like? To define it and to understand it in our own lives as believers. But here's the thing. As simple as that sounds, defining something, uh, it is not easy to define trauma because it all really depends on who you're talking to. If you say trauma to a medical doctor, a specific thing comes to mind. They think of trauma in a very particular way. It means something different in their discipline. Psychiatrists and counselors and therapists will think of it a different way. And then if you talk to, you know, all of the ocean of people who are on social media, they define it a different way, apparently, right? One thing is clear, though. Everybody's talking about it right now. Like, it's everywhere. People are talking about trauma, and it's not easy to define or to understand. So a lot of people you have not really defining it or, or, or trying to narrow down what they mean by it, and they just kind of call a lot of stuff trauma. Everything, it seems like, is trauma. And you've heard those people, right? They say it with a certain tone of voice, and they don't really seem to have a whole lot of thought behind it. They're just throwing the word around because it makes people listen. But at the most clinical level, like if you get on Google right now, don't, you shouldn't, it's bad for you. You don't need to look, look up everything ever that comes to mind. It's not good for your soul. But 
If you get on Google, if you look up the American Psychological Association, right, or, or like the DSM-5, you pull out this monster book and you start reading about what trauma is, it'll say something like this, right? It's uh, any experience or threat of death, injury or violence, abuse, or, or even witnessing something like that. Right? Just to, to witness those sorts of things. Right? But, but for our purposes, I like how Kurt Thompson defines it. Because we're not. We're, I'm not clinical. I'm not trying to convince you I am. I have not gone to school as a, a counselor. No, I, I haven't. And I'm not going to pretend as if I have. But I really like the way Comp Thompson defines this. He says, trauma are events or circumstances perceived by an individual as physically or emotionally overwhelming which has lasting adverse effects on functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and even spiritual well-being. It is an event or circumstance perceived as physically or emotionally overwhelming. And it has these adverse effects in all of these parts of our lives and who we are. How are we doing? Everybody good? Because I know that just felt like the classroom, and I'm the professor reading the PowerPoint presentation for you guys that you could read for yourselves, right? I know it felt like that for a minute, but it's important. We have to define what exactly we mean, because a lot of people just aren't. And that word he uses that I think is so helpful, that nuance he adds with the word perceived. Perceived as physically or emotionally overwhelming. That's important because perception is an important part of the conversation. Trauma is as much about perception of a particular experience as it is about the experience itself. Trauma is about perception. It's about how we perceive and understand this thing, not just the thing itself, but how it is affecting us and how we understand the thing that we've been through. Perception is important. Keep that in mind, right? But I think, regardless of how you define it, nobody is going to try to argue that what Mephibosheth has lived through is not trauma. It is very clearly trauma, right? But what's so helpful, I think, about his story, and one of the reasons I thought of it this week, is that his story is very complicated. It's not just one thing. It's this complex of issues, different factors that, that affect him, that come to define him. Think about it, right? He loses his father and his grandfather in the same day, the same battle. And in that moment of vulnerability, the, the Philistines, they see that moment of vulnerability as an opportunity. They attack the village where he is, and in an effort to flee from danger, he falls. As a five-year-old boy, he's crippled. That would be bad enough, right? But every day he's reminded of that and how powerless he is to change that. How this moment in his life when he was so helpless, something happened to him that he had no control over. But more than that, what we come to realize in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel is that he didn't just lose his father and his grandfather. He lost almost all the rest of his family as well. The way the ancient world works is Saul's family are behind him. And they fight for him. And they died for him. And if they didn't continue to fight, they were hunted down because they were opposed to the, the rule of David, the new king. All he has left, we read, is a child and, and a wife. That's it. He has no one around him any longer. 
It continues to affect him day after day. He has this one trauma that affects him every day, but then there are all these other, what we might call uh, micro-traumas, what you might call, I, another way I've heard it is, is, is little T. Not big T trauma, but, but little T. There are these little T traumas. He's had big T sort of trauma, but these are these smaller things. This seems to kind of like worsen his situation. Everything just gets worse and worse. And that is the case for a whole lot of people. It's not just one thing. It's a whole lot of stuff that has just continued to pile up. They don't see just one experience. It's this long chain of traumatic experiences that are all connected to one another. And it's all so overwhelming. But one of the things I feel like I, I see happening a lot of times right now is a lot of people are calling, again, anything traumatic, and they're calling a lot of things trauma that aren't really traumatic. It's really about losses people have suffered, hurts that they have endured that have never really been grieved. People who've been wounded, people who've been hurt, people who've lost and suffered, but those things have gone ungrieved for a long time. And as a result, these things become more and more traumatic for them. Their perception of these things, right? It changes. Thompson says this well. Uh, I think this is good. He says, it is the minimization of grief that makes us more vulnerable to trauma. The minimization of grief. This tendency we have, and this is a thing that's not, it's not just you or me. It's like culturally we struggle. In the church, we don't talk a lot about these sorts of things, right? There are a whole lot of people that are avoiding grief because grief is difficult. It's easier just to kind of like busy ourselves with something else. And because these things go ungrieved, we become even more vulnerable to trauma, right? Much of what we call traumatic was actually something much simpler in the beginning. But it has gone ungrieved for so long that it has become for us deeply damaging, right? So think about that. If what we're saying uh, in the way we define trauma is that trauma is about perception, right? If it's as much about our perception of an event as the event itself or an experience itself, then that means that when I minimize grief, when I avoid grief inevitably, when I, I don't grieve in worship, when I don't grieve in prayer, when I don't grieve in community and relationship with other people, when I'm not doing this, I will begin to perceive of these things I have been through differently. I will begin to see these things differently. My perception will change, right? And what could have have changed, right? What I could have been healed of, what I, I could have been freed from, it becomes for me a prison. I cannot escape it simply because people don't grieve rightly. They don't know how to grieve. This is why we began last week, by the, the way. Um, Jonathan talked about grief before we got to this point. Grief is important. We cannot overstate that. There are a lot of things that have gone ungrieved for people. And I think some people would argue and say, no, 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 no. I think that's what, exactly what's happening. Culturally, people are grieving right now. That's why everybody's talking about this. And I would say, I think lots of people are making public, making known what they've been through. But I think it kind of like reaches the level of complaint and nothing more. A lot of people are complaining and not that many people are grieving. And it's not necessarily their fault. Nobody's helping them grieve. And the church is not supposed to be a place where people are, are merely complaining. I hope people are complaining in the church. That's what the Psalms look like, is somebody complaining. 
But that complaint, it, it moves toward grief. And you don't see that happening a lot. We complain, but we don't actually grieve. And it seems like Mephibosheth knows that experience all too well. What was already traumatic in his life has just become more and more damaging, right? What he's already been through is bad enough, right? But it's just become worse and worse. And you can hear it in the way he talks about himself. Maybe you notice that. David makes this incredible offer. He has won the lottery. And Mephibosheth says, what is your servant? That you should notice a dead dog like me. Like that's a, a term of derision and hate. It's the kind of term that you would reserve for your enemies. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see it over and over again. And normally it's when you're talking about your enemies, not when you're talking about yourself. But here's the thing. Mephibosheth is so helpful because he's, he's teaching us something about trauma. A huge part of the people, the, the lives of these people who've been through trauma is, is self-loathing. You eventually, after years of not being able to grieve these things, not being able to heal, not being able to hope, you begin to see yourself this way. It's not just your perception of the experience, right, that you've been through. It is your perception of yourself that is affected eventually. Why would you notice a dead dog like me? If you don't grieve these losses, right, they just become more and more traumatic. If you don't grieve the painful things that happen to you in your life, it only gets worse, right? And eventually your own value, your own self-worth, right, it's lost in all this. The beauty of what God created you for, you don't see anymore. It's all lost to you. This is what Jonathan was, was talking about in week one, if you were around for that. We were in the car um, driving that day. We weren't here, uh, and we were listening. I don't know if this is, this is Jonathan's original thought or not. I'm attributing it to him because it's well said. We want to learn to name our grief or the trauma that we've been to without allowing those things to name us. How do we name our grief, name our trauma, without allowing it to name us? And Mephibosheth is a man who has been named by his trauma. He's been there for a long time. He's lived with it so long that it defines him. And not just in others' eyes, right? Of course, other people see him this way, right? He's pitiable, and he's poor, and he's paralyzed and helpless. But it's not just others that see him that way. He sees himself that way. He's a dead dog. And so when David brings him into his court to show him kindness, to adopt him into his family, to give him a place at his table for the rest of his life, he doesn't even know how to receive it. He doesn't even know what to do with it. He doesn't even know what he's supposed to say. He was not expecting something like this. And what's even worse is that it's not just his perception of himself that's been affected. It's his perception of the king that's been affected. It's not just his perception of himself. It's his perception of the king that is affected. Notice, he knows that David is generous and kind. He's heard it from the, the mouth of the king himself, right? And yet, he feels as if what he's been through, who he has become, who he is, seems to nullify the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of the king. It is as if what he has been through negates the goodness of the king. Yes, David is good. Yes, David is kind and faithful. He's a good man. 
He would take care of me, but it would be wasted on me. Why would I allow him to waste all of this on me? It is as if who he is negates the goodness of the king. And there are so many people who have suffered who begin to believe the lie that what they've suffered through negates the goodness of the king. There are so many people who are walking away from the church, who are walking away from faith, who resent the church, who resent everything they've been through because they feel that it all negates the goodness of God. He can't see hope for himself. And a lot of people, not just culturally, in the church, a lot of people cannot see hope for themselves any longer. It has deteriorated for so long. They can't see, oh, at least right now, right? Maybe they, they hang on to the belief of future hope, right? They hang on to the hope of eternity, the hope of the kingdom that is still to come, right? But right now, no, healing is, is not a realistic thing. And that's how many people talk about trauma. I'm just naming this thing, and that's all I can do. It helps make sense of what I've gone through, but not really much more. That is Mephibosheth. But remember... Scripture is full of these kinds of stories, right? There are lots of these moments of trauma in Scripture. And I thought about Mark 5. There's a woman that Jesus encounters. He's actually on his way uh, to a much more important place. He's going to the, the house of Jairus. He's this leader in the temple in Jerusalem, an important man whose daughter is sick and dying. Eventually, Jesus will raise her from the dead, right? Jesus is going somewhere kind of important, right? To an influential and powerful man's house, and on the way, he meets this woman, a woman whose name we don't know. We don't need to know her name because nobody else knows her name. She is a woman who is known only to history by her condition. She's known only by her trauma, right? She is the woman with a bleeding condition. That's it. She is defined by what she's been through. And for years, she has suffered with no answer, with no cure, and she struggles with this, right? She grieves this, but she doesn't lose hope, though. You look at the details of this story, and you realize she hasn't begun to define herself by her circumstance. Everybody else does, right? But she doesn't. This is Mark 5, um, beginning in, in, in verse 25. You can follow along. As Jesus is headed toward Jairus' house, there's this large crowd that's following around him, and they're all pressing in around him. And there was a woman there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she only grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. 
And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, consider this. For a woman who has been suffering with this condition for 12 years in her cultural context, in a Jewish society, she would have also struggled, not just with the condition, but with the stigma attached to that condition, right? This is not just about the trauma of, of her diagnosis. It's about more than that, right? It's much more complicated. There's a long list of experiences she's had of people pushing her away, people keeping her at a distance, people being disgusted by her, people being somewhat afraid. Because Jewish scripture says that to bleed in this way makes you impure, unclean. And so for 12 years, she's existed in that state, defined as impure and unclean by everybody around her. But it's more than that, right? It's about all the times she went to a doctor who was promising a cure who could not deliver on that promise, right? Her hopes being dashed over and over again. And surely she perceived those things as traumatic as well. Surely she saw those things as painful and she grieved those things. But what you see in her story is that her grief leads her to hope and not despair. She's truly grieving. And you can tell that by the way she, she handles herself. She approaches Jesus boldly. Some people might even say like offensively, rudely, right? What she does is offensive. But she knows Jesus can heal her. She's not lost all hope of being healed, right? She says even just touching the edge of his garment would be enough, right? There is this faith still intact in her, right? She's still holding on to something. As broken as she is, as traumatized as she has been, she does not believe her circumstance somehow negates the goodness and the kindness and the mercy, the self-giving love of this man, Jesus. Her grief leads her to hope. And she must believe that because she does something that everybody else would recognize as risky in her society. She touches a man in public as an unclean woman, risking making him unclean, right? It's an offensive sort of thing to do. It would be viewed as, as rude at best, right? But she knows Jesus will heal her. He won't be offended. He won't push her away. He won't distance himself from her. She knows he will heal her. He will show himself to be good. She knows there is still beauty in her story. She's not lost sight of that. She knows there's still beauty and goodness in her story, right? She's still holding on to that. She knows that Jesus can make the pain of her trauma somehow beautiful. And that is a hard thing to believe, if we're being honest. It's a hard thing to believe that trauma could ever become beautiful, that it could be transformed, something that should never have happened. But she knows there is beauty for her ashes. She still knows how to receive. 
Her perception of herself, her perception of her situation has not become so dark that she cannot reach out toward Jesus. And that's how the church ought to talk about grief. That's how the church ought to talk about trauma. We cannot talk about trauma in the same way everybody else is. Everybody's throwing this word around, and we're certainly affected by the things. It's not like we're going to have less of that in our lives necessarily. But when we talk about it, surely we should be talking about it differently, right? There is something so beautiful about the kind of therapeutic moment that we are living through culturally. Like people are naming their, their anxiety and their depression, the things they've been through, the abuses they suffered that nobody knew about for years. Man, that is good, right? There's something beautiful about that. People wrestling with these things, their circumstances that are really painful and not thinking they got to do it by themselves, right? That's good. But for many people, the conversation on trauma is almost nothing more than like an airing of grievances. It's about drawing attention to my oppressor, my victimizer, the one who hurt me, right? It's about anger. And you should be angry about these kinds of things. And I would hope in the church you would find a whole bunch of people who will be angry with you. That's good. Anger is part of the process. But the church can't just be full of angry people. Like the church can't just remain in anger. Anger can't heal us. Anger has to, to become anguish and desperation. Anger has to become grief. And grief can lead us to healing. But there's a whole lot of people, they're not naming it any longer because they're interested in healing. It's just about anger. It's just about trying to make sense of these things they've been through. And instead of seeking healing, a whole lot of people are just trying to make known why they're so broken, right? One of the things we all wrestle with is that we feel really misunderstood. Like nobody gets us. Nobody understands our story. Nobody knows what I've been through. Nobody can make sense of the things I suffered. And so we name these things to try to explain to people, this is why I'm so messed up, right? This is why I have such issues. This is why I am the way I am. And that's about what it is. People aren't interested necessarily in healing any longer. Or not, I shouldn't say not interested. They're certainly interested. They're not expecting healing. They're not seeking healing. And over time, through that process, we lose faith. We stop hoping that we will be healed. We stop believing that that such a, so, sort of thing would be possible for us. And Jesus makes this profound statement that we all need to hear. He looks at this woman in this moment and he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, a whole lot of people around them could be very confused by what just transpired. This feels very superstitious. This feels very strange. You're telling me Jesus' clothes are healing people? And Jesus says, No. It was not my magical robe. It was not the, the, the robe that was touching my magical body that healed her. No, it was your faith, daughter, that healed you. Her faith in Jesus is what heals her. Her persistent belief in the goodness of God, that there is still beauty in her story as he is writing it for her, right? That persistent belief, this is what has healed her. Her belief that not only could Jesus heal her, Jesus would heal her, right? Her belief that not just is Jesus capable, right? Everybody recognizes Jesus is capable of healing people. She not only sees Jesus as capable of healing her, but sees that Jesus desires to heal her. 
And so she doesn't mind doing something that others might see as rude or offensive. She reaches out toward him. And she's healed. She doesn't need to ask because she knows. She already knows what his answer will be. Right? Remember, there's that story of a man who comes to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be made clean. This woman doesn't even need to ask. She knows he's not only willing, he's going to do it that day. Jesus is merciful, and she knows that regardless of how long she's suffered, right? But there are a whole lot of people who are just angry. They're not seeking healing. They're just angry. Then there are the, the, the other people who have ignored grief for so long in their lives that they find they have unknowingly, unwittingly, unintentionally led themselves into just more grief, more trauma, more pain. And they don't want to grieve in community, right? The idea of vulnerability just sounds ridiculous, especially to men, right? Nobody wants to talk about that stuff. I don't want to, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about something, you know, more masculine. I don't know, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I don't want to deal with all that stuff. People don't want to grieve in community because it's, it's uncomfortable a lot of times. Like, I don't want to bring this stuff up. They don't want to bring these things into prayer, even. They're sick of hearing about it. They're sick of listening to themselves talk about it, right? They don't want to bring these things into prayer. They don't want to bring these things into worship. They don't want to bring these things into their relationships because maybe they've tried before and it didn't change anything. Um, but they're not talking about these things, and they find the pain seems to perpetuate. This is happening. It's happened in the church for sure. But they don't even know they need to, right? It's as if Jesus is, is passing by, right? They know the crowd is coming through town, and at the center of the crowd is this man, Jesus, and they don't even know they need to reach out their hand toward him because they don't even know they need to be healed, really, because there's all these things they haven't grieved. They just kind of push down for a long time, and eventually... It will all fester to the point that they, they can't hide it anymore. I think for a lot of people, um, it's a lot of different things. I think family is a source of a whole lot of, of pain and trauma for a lot of people. Um, obviously, I think a lot of people grew up in divorced families. Uh, that's a really painful thing. Maybe you lived through that. Maybe it was your own divorce. Um, maybe it was uh, growing up in a family where you felt like uh, you were resented. Uh, maybe it was growing up in a family where you felt like you were neglected, uh, like your parents were just struggling to survive uh, and you were just an afterthought. Um, it could be a whole lot of things uh, in, in family that people wrestle with and they don't know how to talk about, right? Maybe it's um, depression or anxiety that seems to be bringing you to the brink again and again. For a lot of different people, it's a lot of different things. The list is too long for me to be able to name. Maybe it's not just the thing that happened in your home. Maybe it happened to you in the church. Uh, I um, have lived through some painful things in the church. A lot of people here have. Mosaic, for some reason, over the years, I don't know what it is other than um, God's will. I don't know. For so many people to come through the doors of our church who've been through church trauma, um, who've been hurt in very real ways in the church, and it was never acknowledged, it was never dealt with. It was just kind of like this, this quiet, silent apology, or maybe not even that. There are a lot of people who have suffered through really painful things. 
And maybe that was you, right? Or maybe, maybe you're the person who's, who kind of fits into the cultural moment. You kind of call everything trauma at this point because everything in your life just feels really hard. Um, everything you see just feels traumatic to you. And your perception of everything coming your way is that it's just insurmountable and impossible and overwhelming. And you just need to learn to actually grieve. And that's okay. That's good. We want to invite you into that, right? Maybe your job has never been satisfying. That's a thing to be grieved. Maybe relationships have never worked out. Maybe it was a bad breakup. <laughs> Maybe it was your undiagnosed ADHD. Maybe it was um, some silly experience with some girl in, in, in elementary school that said something that just stung. And it just kind of comes back to you every once in a while. I don't know, man. There are a whole lot of things that, that we're calling trauma that we, we really should have grieved all along. And we want to create space for that. In worship, in prayer, in our community, we want to cre create space for that. So that we're not calling everything trauma, but that we're, we're knowing how to grieve those things regardless, right? Because what's so beautiful about these stories is that seemingly there is no trauma so severe, no grief that is so simple that Jesus either can't or won't heal it. There is nothing that we have been through, no trauma we have endured that negates the invitation to come and sit at his table for the rest of our lives. Nothing. And so as we, as we move into worship now, as the band comes and we come to the table, I mean, the invitation is the same that Mephibosheth was hearing that day from David. Come and sit at the table. Come and find healing. Come and find freedom. Come and allow your story to be renamed at the table. We believe there is something powerful that happens every time we come to this bread and this cup. And that's what we invite you into in these moments. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the chance to talk about um, not just easy things, not just light things, uh, not just feel-good topics, um, but to talk about the beauty and the healing that is to be found even in our grief, even in our trauma, not just on the other side of it, but here and now. And God, we pray in this moment, Lord, we would know what it looks like for us to reach out toward you. To not keep ourselves at a distance. To step out of our, our, our self-loathing. To step out of our, uh, our tendency to, uh, to stuff these things down. Whatever it might have been, Lord. Um, help us to know what it looks like for us to stretch our hand toward you. And to find healing and freedom and peace in your presence this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.